This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. How hey, you doing, Joris? Max? How you doing? I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you doing? You're good? I'm good. I'm good. I just went to a show, like a an actual convention, and it was interesting to like see other physical human beings and physical yeah. spaces. Yeah. I had I had my first in person meeting uh, <laughs> two days ago. It's like we're like recovering uh, <laughs> addicts or something of, of isolation. We're addict isolationists. <laughs> He's very close to me. <laughs> He's so close. This is weird. <laughs> Who do we have on the podcast today? Uh, well, today we've got Joseph Crabtree on the podcast. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of Additive Manufacturing Technologies. Everyone calls it AMT. And uh, AMT makes post-processing uh, equipment. So post-processing is, well, that helps get more reliable, repeatable parts. And also it helps improve the surface texture, makes parts more consumer-friendly and better looking and uh, more suited to fulfill different kind of roles. So, and that's what, what and yeah, and at the same time, their their post pro production platform yeah saves money because you don't have to have a person uh, do all the stuff by hand so so yeah it's a very valuable thing and we're gonna talk a lot uh, to Joseph today about uh, AMT and, and what he's up to over there so welcome to three D Pod Joseph thank you very much and thank you all for having me today looking forward to uh, having this discussion with you so first off um, how did you, you you're originally a material scientist mm-hmm. and so how did you end up well, first of all, how'd you end up in 3D printing? What, 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 tickle, what, what got you involved with, with 3D printing? Yeah, good question. So, you know, you know, full disclosure here, six years ago, which is uh, when uh, I started AMT, I, I knew nothing about 3D printing. So my background, <laughs> you, you know, it's true. I mean, you know, you know, cards on the table here. And, uh, you know, uh, prior to that, as you, as you said, Joris, I was a material scientist. So I graduated in well, seems like a long time ago, in 2006, from Sheffield University in, in the UK with material sciences and engineering degree, and really didn't know what to do. But because Sheffield was like the home of steel, metal manufacturing, traditional manufacturing in the UK, I ended up going into traditional manufacturing. So I was a metallurgist by trade, so specializing in metal, and, and really sort of how to manufacture metal components for highly critical applications, for example, aerospace, off-highway, military defense, et cetera. And I went into various engineering roles. And, you know, typical sort of career in multinational company, ended up working all around the world, very fortunate to do that, and then sort of moved into process improvement, operations management, and then finally sort of sold myself to the dark side of sales and marketing. And so I was very, you know, very fortunate to see all different aspects of, of the business. But firmly rooted in traditional manufacturing. And I spent about um, a decade doing that in, in, in various roles. And sort of in 2016 time, randomly, I, I got uh, approached by this guy who, was, who turned up at my factory and he claimed he had an appointment with me to, uh, to talk to me about this new technology called 3D printing. And he didn't, but anyway, he was a typical salesperson. <laughs> and, and he turned up with literally this briefcase full of 3D printed parts. And I'd never seen anything like this in my life. You know, and this guy literally turned up with these parts trying to convince me to buy a 3D printer. I think it was a, a Stratasys um, FDM printer, industrial printer. And of course, I had no use for it. I had no 
understanding of what these things were, but it piqued my interest. And, you know, I, I got to a certain point in my career as well that I kind of wanted to try something new. And so I started doing the research about 3D printing. I was like, well, you know, it's been around for 20 plus years. Obviously, no one's really using it. You know, this guy's doing a poor job trying to sell me a printer. And uh, uh, what, what is there an opportunity here? And I, I, I sort of went full circle and went back to my uh, university, University of Sheffield. And they had actually sort of in the in the 10 years that I'd been away, had transitioned from, let's say, metal bashing, you know, traditional manufacturing, forging, casting, you know, CNC machining, into 3D printing. And they'd become like world experts in 3D printing, uh, Professor Ian Todd, and at the time, Professor Neil Hopkinson, who's now uh, a strategist. Um, and they'd sort of pioneered a load of metal, you know, printing technology and polymer printing technology, which is actually uh, high-speed sintering, which is now um, transformed to the SAF technology for strategists, but that's a side point. But... They, they were looking at, at, at 3D printing and, 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 and sort of looking at the sort of areas that needed improvement. And I, I sort of spoke to them about it. So I was like, well, guys, why is this not an industrialized technology? Why is it all in academia? Why is there so few people actually using this to produce you know, production parts? And they explained a couple of the challenges. And the one thing that I really noticed and latched onto was this, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, Joyce, but this post-processing or finishing. And it seemed that everyone was focused maniacally on, you know, Bigger, better, faster, cheaper printers, more varied materials, you know, great. You can print what you want, but what do you do with it afterwards? And uh, coming from a traditional manufacturing background where, you know, you produce tens of thousands of parts, hundreds of thousands of parts, millions of parts, and it's normal, you know, manufacturing process. It just seemed bizarre that there was this great, you know, unlocking technology, but no one was really utilizing it. And so... That's kind of a bit about my background and then what led to AMT being formed in 2017. And we, we, we just decided, right, we, we're not going to you know, get into the relatively crowded space of 3D printers. We're not going to build another 3D printer. We're not going to get into the material space, but we're going to get into this sort of third part of the trifactor, which is you know, the post-processing or finishing. And you know, a little bit of luck, right place at the right time. But you know, 2017, 2016 was the time that you know, HP were releasing their multi-jet fusion platform to the world. It was the time that people were starting to think about, you know, voxel jet with high-speed sintering. You know, people were starting to think about, uh, you know, 3D printing as a production technology. And there was more awareness of this thing called finishing or post-processing, i.e., well, what are we supposed to do? And how do we do it? And how do we automate it? And how do we reduce costs? And how do we make the parts look, feel, and perform better? And with this sort of advent and this sort of um, the advent of high, higher speed printing technologies, the shift from, let's say, lower volume prototyping to an academia through to end part production on 3D printers drove our opportunity and our market opportunity. And that's how, how, how the company is born. And uh, as I say, the rest is, uh, as I say, is history. How did you guys sort of did you use your own money? Did you have investors on board? How did that the, the part of the equation uh, uh, line up? Yeah, so, it, you know, they always say that hardware businesses are the hardest to start. You know, so software is relatively easy because it's a laptop and some code and uh, not being disingenuous to any software founders out there, but, it, you know, relatively simple. Hardware, which is what we were trying to do, which is producing a physical machine to finish parts, is by its virtue, by, by its own virtue, hard, its own nature hard because it's a physical asset that you're trying to produce. So um, I, I actually started the company with only um, twenty thousand pounds, or at that time probably about thirty thousand um, dollars, which is a very small amount. And um, took that money 
And we licensed some technology from the University of Sheffield. We managed to strike up a good deal with them, you know, some technical know-how that had been developed. And we took that and we filed some IP. We filed a patent. And um, off the back of that, we managed to actually get a, uh, a UK government uh, innovation grant for 600 and something Whoa. thousand pounds, which is great. You know, for normally yeah. startup companies can't get this. You know, you need to be cash flow positive. Yeah. You need to be demonstrate all these metrics. So, you know, it's about 800 odd thousand dollars at that time. And, and that was really transformative for the company. And, and that really launched us in terms of, you know, we had a bit of cash flow. We had a bit of money coming in. And, you know, we started the company in in Sheffield, um, in the north of the United Kingdom, and uh, in literally a, you know, 20 square meter workshop. And um, the, the, the challenge that we decided to solve was um, the finishing of polymer parts specifically. And even more specifically, how do we reduce the surface roughness? How do we seal the surface? How do we make that part functional and look and feel great? Because the challenge with 3D printed parts up until this point is that, you know, they come out of the printer, but they look terrible, they feel terrible, and typically they don't have all of the properties or the sealing characteristics that you may require for, for, for an end-use part. So our goal was really sort of try and understand how you smooth, finish, and, and, and functionalize a, a polymer part, which sounds easy, but then you've got this combination of physical hardware that you have to develop, some mechanical engineering, you've got all the chemistry, so lots of chemicals involved, material sciences, software, coding, automation, et cetera, et cetera. So with that funding, we were able to develop our first concept machine um, and uh, build from that. But, but actually, if we take a step back to Formnext 2016, I won't name the company, but we managed to, uh, th this was the time that HP were launching um, the, the HP Multijet Fusion uh, printers. And we actually managed to sell a company, uh, a machine. That, that so much was, the, I guess, so great was the requirement for post-processing and, and the need uh, for someone, sort of some company to come along and fill that void, that we actually managed to get a purchase order at um, Formnext 2016. And I remember getting this purchase order from this large multinational who will remain nameless. Um, and A, we couldn't believe it because as a company that had literally started a few days ago, you know, that didn't make any logical sense in our brains. But what was even more interesting was that two weeks later, they uh, mailed us or wired us uh, $40,000 to our bank account. And uh, uh, so that helped with the uh, development. But uh, needless to say, it put a certain commercial pressure on us. So a lot of companies have started. There's a very elongated and uh, long R&D process. But our R&D process was very much firmly rooted in commercial success. You know, we had to develop a machine in a certain time frame. We had commercial partners and pressures from that. We had a development grant that we were, were utilizing. Um, but really from that, we managed to... Um, uh, develop and commercialize the world's uh, first automated chemical vapor smoothing machine, which is what we call, to Joris's point earlier, post-pro. Um, and that allows us to basically, you know, transform the look, feel, and performance of a 3D printed part and transform it into something that, that, that performs like a traditionally manufactured part. And, you know, that, that machine's been commercialized now. Uh, we're in our uh, sixth year of trading uh, there's about 200 customers around the world using our systems in about 28 countries. Uh, we've grown the company to just over 100 um, employees now. Uh, we've got facilities in, as I said, in Sheffield, in mainland Europe, in Hungary, where we do design and manufacturing. And then we've got a facility in North America, in Austin, Texas. So, you know, that, that part of the journey has been funded by external investment in terms of uh, equity, private VC uh, investment and some strategic investors. But yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey, nonetheless. Okay, okay. but that, that, that's a that's a 
a really quick growth given the, the scale, the, the time scale as well, right? So there was a lot of, uh, so you got you hit the ground running, but also after that, there must have been a lot of interest as well. Correct, I, 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 exactly. And, and as soon as we started launching the product and talking about the product commercially, then we realized that we were solving, you know, the, the, the missing piece. And we're very fortunate in a way that it wasn't a crowded marketplace. You know, there's only a few other companies in the world who were doing uh, post-processing or focusing on the finishing of 3D printed parts. Um, you yeah. know, there's, there's, there's one in Europe, there's one in the US, but no one really doing what our niche was. And that we were very fortunate. Again, right time, right place, and also right point within the market growth. Do, so, do you, sorry, do you mean like the niche of trying to automate it completely or do you mean like the niche of just finishing yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, both. And I, I, I think that up until now, people were kind of struggling a little bit. You know, literally, if you went to a 3D printing, you know, manufacturing center of excellence, you'd walk in the door and see all these amazing 3D printers and, you know, it'd be perfectly laid out and, you know, the, 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 the white walls and, you know, it'd look very futuristic, Industry 4 enabling technology, right? And then, then they sort of shuffle you behind, you know, these do double doors and behind the double doors, there'd be 40 people like filing, sanding and trying to finish parts. And you kind of think, well, <laughs> there's a problem here, right? You know, this doesn't make sense. You know, this is the bit oh. they're not really uh, showing. All I can imagine is like a Geppetto-like character, you know, like a guy named Fritz with a, a leather apron <laughs> sitting there lovingly sanding. A, a 3D printed part to make it look like art artisanal almost, well, you know? Well, well, you, 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 you joke, and that model-making mentality, which is exactly mm. what you're talking about, was carried yeah. over into 3D printing. So that's not too far off that analogy. And, you know, but but that, that's great if you're producing low volumes or, let's say, prototypes for um, product development. But when you want to try and produce 10,000 of those, you know, the, right. the, in each one, it's just impossible. And it's not just the economics that don't make sense. It's the repeatability and reproducibility which doesn't make sense, you know? So, so that was kind of like, I used to call it, we used to call it 3D printing's dirty little secret, right? You know, this was supposed to be a futuristic technology, but in the background, if you really dug a little deeper under the skin, there was all these kind of fundamental uh, problems. So, you know, as soon as, you know, th this isn't just about, you know, having a machine that automates the process and, and, you know, replaces manual processes. It was as much about developing a technology as it was education and convincing people that there has to be a better way and that you have to, not just rely on manual methods. And by making that transition, you know, it was hard at the beginning. That people were like, why do I spend $100,000 on this piece of equipment when I've just, you know, bought a printer? You know, the printer company never told me I need to do this, right? And, you know, that's always a, it's a tough sell though, right? You know, like if you're a printer company, you're saying, look, this is the, the world's best, newest, greatest technology. Um, your part comes out, oh, and by the way, you need to add another 30 to 40% of the total part cost to it just to finish it. And it doesn't make for a good marketing story. So we were kind of fighting that and we were kind of the afterthought and, and, and have been until fairly recently. And it's not until fairly recently that, you know, these printer OEMs are starting to consider the, you know, the materials, the printer and the finishing or the post-processing as part of the ecosystem and making that as a, as a, as a sale. And that, that's really beneficial for the industry as well. And the technology itself, because I was familiar with vapor smoothing before. Like once we tried to order a whole bunch of parts with vapor smoothing, and we ended up having little black spots on the parts. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was also like a contact point where I think it was hung up in the chamber or something where, where it wouldn't be smooth. And that was really annoying. I remember we were trying to sell that to customers and they were like, uh, no. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I also tried to do this. Uh, I also tried to do this in my own house and also ended up nearly killing myself. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend that, by the way. I've not told this. I mean, I, uh, I was doing it's, it's, I, was, I used acetone and oh. then uh, I tried to aerate the acetone and then my fan ended up 
that I was like a fan and, the, uh, and it ended up not working. And so I ended up getting too much of it and I ended up fainting in my bathroom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, wow. While there was, wow. Like acetone, there was like acetone everywhere. Acetone still going. Uh, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, so, and then at that point I was like, yeah, we probably shouldn't like, you know, roll that out to consumers or something. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, my, so my, my initial contact with vapor smoothing, the, the, the experience wasn't really that altogether positive. Um, but, 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 but the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, this is exactly the challenges that we were facing. And, you know, there was kind of a bunch of YouTube videos, I remember, of people with glass jars and putting their small, like, you know, Benchy FDM mm. model into the glass mm-hmm. jar and putting some acetone yeah. in and seeing what happened. And it's the, it's the same thing. It is problematic. And, and just to your comment about the parts with black spots on, I think they were probably um, they were probably some of our early parts, to be fair. You know, maybe some early development parts. And uh, yeah, it was always a, uh, a challenge because if you think from a cleanliness perspective, um, you're in essence taking that chemical vapor, you're reflowing the surface of the part. But when you reflow the surface of the part, if there's any debris, dirt, or anything else in the air, then it can come into contact with the part and cause cause it right. to, you know, cause that. So it is a challenge. And, you know, going from, like, as you described, Joris, that um, I'm in, in my house, I'm doing it in my garage, you know, you know, killing myself sort of thing, to actually putting that in a commercial machine is a challenge as well. It's not just about how you control the process, you know, how you build the machine. There's all those safety factors uh, to consider as well. Yeah. And how does your how does your process work then? So our core technology, which is chemical vapor smoothing, which is what we've been talking about, in essence, we take a, a range of now proprietary consumables, and they're they're really tailored depending on the the, the ultimate polymer that we we're, we're finishing. Uh, so a range of consumables, which are chemicals, we then vaporize that, and then under controlled temperature, time, and pressure conditions, in essence, it's a vacuum. So it's uh, under negative pressure. We reflow the surface of the part, and it's by controlling the part's exposure to the chemical vapor under those time, pressure, and temperature constants that allows us not to completely deform the part. You know, we're not adding or removing material. Uh, we don't change the dimensional tolerances. It means you can smooth complex lattice structures. It's completely safe because the user isn't exposed to any vapors, unlike Joris. Um, and, you, you know, <laughs> it's a reproducible, um, repeatable process, which can be industrialized. And, you know, that that's sort of the, really the core technology, mm. the value-add technology that allows you to transform the part into something that looks, feels, and performs like an injection molded part. Oh, so what's the range of materials that you currently are doing? I mean, you're, you can do, I assume, like ABS and PLA, but are you also doing some of like the powdered fusion materials? And yeah, the- so so we focused from the beginning because, uh, you know, again, to Joris' example, you know, the, 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 the parts done in the house, but that was sort of typically limited to ABS and sort of, you know, FDM materials. Right. So we really did focus on engineered polymers from powder-based technologies, SLS, MJF, HSS, for example, um, and industrial FDM, for example, from Stratasys. Um, and yeah, focusing on nylons, but TPUs, TPEs, you know, composite materials, you know, we now do all of the Mark Forge materials, for example, composite materials. We do um, desktop metal materials, you know, the, the, oh, the extruded okay. metal materials, for example. So yeah, yeah, yeah. anything that's got a polymer uh, matrix um, or blend uh, we can do um, and so so the technology is now really expanded and grown from you know a, a small range of nylons to now over 150 validated materials across all OEMs right so and that that's really important that we're opening up the ecosystem to all those material providers and all those printer OEMs 
And, and, and what's a solvent that you use? <laughs> so we use a number of solvents. So we, we, um, they, they're typically medically graded solvents. So they're, they're solvents that are used in uh, the medical industry. Um, you know, and everyone has their own view on uh, chemicals. You know, the word chemicals normally has a negative connotation. But solvents specifically, you know, water is a solvent, for example. So it's just varying degrees of um, solvents. And obviously, you need certain type of solvent to... Um, uh, dissolve uh, or reflow nylons or TPEs or TPUs, etc. So typically we use chemicals that are derived from medical products. Um, so, so medical products that are used in, for example, uh, operating theatres for, uh, uh, you know, in operations in terms of anaesthetic, or it could be stuff that's used in um, uh, bio applications. It could be stuff that's used, um, you know, in a wide number of industrial applications that are currently in use. And it's really important that we do that because there's a couple of points about that. Number one, our systems are designed for um, no net losses, which basically, or zero losses, which basically means we recover, recapture all of the solvent and the chemicals in the machine. And therefore, you're not outputting anything to the environment, number one. But also, secondly, we take the, the materials back, reclaim and recycle them. So, you know, from a circular economy point of view and from an environmental point of view, it's very beneficial. But we also want mm -hmm. to make sure we're using chemicals or consumables that are uh, widely accepted. And, and, and you know, that that's sort of reflected in our uh, customer base. You know, we just to give you an example now, we, we power, our technology powers about 90% of the world's 3D printing manufacturing operations. So think about manufacturing operations as anyone who's using you know, 5, 10, 15 printers or more. could be a high-volume production a bureau, a 3D printing bureau. It could be like an HP production partner. It could be a listed um, OEM in the footwear industry, for example, or the medical industry. And those listed and large OEMs and production uh, companies have very exacting requirements because obviously they're either listed companies or they're producing consumer products or whatever it may be. So you know, we validated all of those chemicals, all of those processes and all of those, um, uh, our process and also the parts for those applications, whether it be medical uh, approval or consumer use or food contact. And, you know, there's a myriad of regulations that you need to be aware of, for example, skin contact. Um, but it's just, if you can produce technology and solutions that, uh, you know, are applicable to all of those, then you open up the markets and the applications. And does that mean, like, so does any of the material stay on the part? Is that the, you know, because that it just seems like it would just stay on the part afterwards, or how does that work? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So in essence, we're, con the con I mean, this is a very quick process. You know, the contact time with the part in terms of the actual chemical contact, we're talking seconds, you know, minutes at uh, most. And the rest of the cycle time, which is typically an hour um, or 90 minutes maximum, is actually drying the part, extracting the chemical back from the surface of the part and recovering it. So in essence, you end up with a part that's suitable to touch straight out of the machine and can be then used in a applications such as a medical part for example or a skin contact part or whatever it may be so it, there's there's it's not just about making the process safe it's about making the parts safe so so that's really something that we've built into our ethos and you know that we have to be you know we've got a lot of strategic investors um uh, who invested in the company who've obviously got uh, interest in 3d printing such as uh, dsm uh, more recently saint gaban um who are becoming very active uh, in the 3d printing space and you know we also need to take into consideration their company's um, uh, requirements as well and, and what they want to see in terms of the technologies we develop so it's really great having those sort of value add input from investors um, and opening up you know these uh, new market requirements but it's something definitely that you need to be aware of in terms of when you're developing these new technologies 
And can I use this to like for medical parts? You were mentioning medical before. So do you, can I, can I make something that's like, let's say a medical part? Yeah. So, so we don't currently focus on metals. Typically most of the implants are metal based is metals is an area we're moving into gradually. Um, but in terms of the polymer size, a lot of the medical applications tend to be things like, um, uh, o and P, so things like sort of uh, replacement limbs, um, you know, or, or 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 parts that are used in, let's say, the operating theatre environment, um, custom leg splints, for example, hip replacement surgery, um, or it could be things like, I mean, the the very common example of, um, you know, COVID nineteen nasal swabs, for example, and you know that's a great example where we worked with HP, the printer company. Um, the material providers, we worked with the certifying bodies in the US and Europe to certify, you know, COVID-19 nasal swabs for testing um, with our process. And then ZigZag, the production partner, uh, produced millions of those for use in Belgium and is still producing those. And, you know, that's an example of a medical product all the way through to, you, you know, listed uh, medical companies using our uh Printing, well, printing parts, using our technology to finish it, and then using it in in, in operating theatres. So there's a wide range of uses. Okay. Um, it's a very exciting field, but again, each each application has different exacting requirements. And you know, in terms of like, okay, so there's a broad amount of recipes and stuff. Do I? And you always need to kind of do you need to know what material and what printer to to, to uh, and what settings to, to to obtain the right solution? Is it really very very different depending on like the color of parts or the size of the material used, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So there are. I mean, you mentioned a couple of variables there, but absolutely, yeah. You know, printer specific, material specific, geometry specific, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The list goes on. But what we're actually doing now, and, and, and this is going to be announced um, publicly shortly, but we, we, in collaboration with our investor Saint Gaban, we are actually um, uh, using AI and machine learning to transform the user experience. And what I mean by that is that. Similar to a 3D printer, our machine requires some skill to use, right? You need to understand what you want to achieve. You've got to put in a recipe or set of parameters. And although we support the customer with that, it's still a relatively manual process. And of course, there can be a whole myriad of combinations and, and, and parameters that need to be set and optimized. So what we're doing in conjunction with our partner, St. Gaban, is we're actually fully optimizing that now using the wealth of data that we gathered over the, the, the last six years. And we're now introducing systems and software, which basically, to your point, would allow you to input, for example, it's an HP MJF 5210 printer, nylon 11 material. This is the geometry because we've got the CAD file or the STL file. This is the requirement that we need, for example, a surface roughness of less than one micron. This is the level of shine or gloss that we want and out would spew a, a number of parameters which feed into the machine and process the part so that's really the end goal in the next 12 to 18 months and and so what i like about vapor smoothing uh, is of course like you know the alternative is usually mechanical right and mm -hmm, correct. and uh um or that's it that's what most industries use like mechanical like you know pellets or whatever you put in like mm -hmm. kind of washing machine with rocks um and uh so and this of course for smooth parts uh this, this is of course is advantageous you mentioned tpu and stuff like that uh, but for parts like that, like this kind of process is, uh, has a distinct advantage, right? Uh, uh, absolutely. And you've got to remember with mechanical tumbling is that it actually over time degrades the um, dimensional tolerance of the part. You know, you're kind of removing uh, material from the part and over time that has a, a detrimental effect on the part. Plus, mechanical tumbling can't reach those complex lattice structures, you know, the, the, the inner channels, et cetera, that a non-line of sight process like chemical vapor smoothing can. So there are... I guess the traditional manufacturing analogs or, or equivalents, for example, that the, the the tumbling you just described. 
but really our technology is is developed for um, 3D printing and 3D printed parts and it's the next evolution um, in that. But of course, if you are moving towards metal and more, well, maybe even SLA and stuff like this, you know, maybe you need to turn to other technologies or... Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, metal is obviously more challenging because it's metal. I mean, my background is in in metallurgy, so it's it's kind of a natural fit. But the, the, again, talking about market shifts, you know, the market is starting to really pick up in terms of metal three D printing, growth of the metal three D printing sector, um, and there there is a big big opportunity there. But yeah, there, there would be a combination of processes, some similar to what we're currently using, but um, some would be dissimilar needless to say there's a big opportunity in metal yeah and how do you like and how do you then focus on on growing your business because okay so you went very quickly you had a customer like before you're even good at setting up the business Mm -hmm. then you had additional customers then you had to to spread and then you decided i think it's an interesting point that you decided to to do manufacturing in hungary and and have your own subsidiary there but why did you do that actually that, that i thought was an interesting move in that in that tumultuous growth period you know, I could imagine you would think like keeping the business simple would be better. And then all of a sudden setting up a subsidiary in another country would be really com- complicated, right? It, oh, you're absolutely right. It was very complicated and, uh, you know, it, lots of uh, sleepless nights. But what it did give us is two things. Number one, um, it gave us protection against Brexit because, of course, Brexit got thrown into the mix, <laughs> you know, through this um, journey that we've been on. And, you know, that caused problems in terms of import, export, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that gave us protection against Brexit. But moreover than that, it allowed us to design, manufacture and bring to market product a lot quicker than any of our competitors because we had full control over it. And mm-hmm. it allows us to iterate on that product, i.e. make improvements and bring new products to market quicker as well. So the th- those were kind of the sort of benefits. Yes, it's been a long road to get it to the point where you know, it's functioning and it's delivering how we want. But, you know, a lot of companies just subcontract the manufacturing. But at that point, you're locked in. And if you've not got a finalized design or if you've not, you know, if it's a new technology, that can be uh, inherently risky as well. So, you know, in hindsight, it was a great thing to do. But, you know, it, it, it definitely wasn't an easy journey. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think definitely we've seen a couple of 3D printer companies essentially fail on the, on, the, on the oem side because they tried to outsource and they didn't do it appro- appropriately you know i was doing like kind of an autopsy on one of these and i asked them like so who do you have in was it romania or something and mm-hmm. they were like no one <laughs> just their outsourcing partner yeah. and i'm like oh okay i think i understand what went on <laughs> like they didn't even have a, a someone on the ground yeah no they didn't have anyone there <laughs> just the outsourcing guy uh, that visit every, uh, yeah <laughs> so and visit it's, every once in a while it, and, and it's really, making stuff that doesn't work <laughs> yeah and it's really important you mentioned about growth of the business and really you know we started off with chemical vapor smoothing so let's say individual module sales we then moved into cleaning equipment i.e. depowdering equipment for um uh, 3d printing but really the growth of the business and why having our own let's say design and manufacturing facility is so important is because we're now starting to deliver complete end-to-end systems so think about this more like an automotive production line with robots with agvs with conveyor belts with you know part handling systems that's the future uh, and that's really our being our vision and uh, ever since we started the company, which is this, as we call it, the digital manufacturing system or DMS. And it's how you then link the printer to the post-processing hardware, to the chemical vapor smoothing, to the, you know, it might be bin sorting or part sorting at the end, and then overarch that with a, a software architecture. And that's kind of what we've been working towards over the last six years. And that's really where the value and the, the, the growth of the company is going to come in the, in, in, in the near future. And 
we've we've made some announcements recently about um, uh, some exciting partnerships in that space as well. And you know, we're going to be starting to deliver these first end-to-end systems, which will be true production systems for you know manufacturing using three D printing, which is incredibly exciting. I agree, but and also this is interesting because I've, I've thought a lot about this and had a lot of conversations about this. And there's two, well, there's a couple of ways to do it. I mean, one is like a batch to batch kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're going, you take the output of one printer and then you carry it over to a finishing station, etc. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Or maybe actually, um, well, there's actually a third way. And the third way, the second way would be kind of a round robin kind of approach, or kind of like a, you know, you'd have robots that convey batch to batch from multiple systems to multiple uh, post-processing systems and onward, right? Which is a bit more complicated, mm-hmm. but it gives you a bit of redundancy. Or you have like a line approach, right? Which is just great if everything works well, and of course if it breaks down, it's terrible, right? Um, so, and <laughs> so which of these kind of approaches are you guys thinking about? Yeah, so, so in terms of what we've actually started developing and um, you know, bringing to market with our partners and starting to integrate, and you know, we, we're not talking something that's you know, years off, you know, these are systems that are going to be integrated in the coming, you know, months, uh, year tops. And, you know, if you think about printing as a batch process, to your point is, you know, if you've got an HP Multijet Fusion or an SLS printer or whatever it may be, the parts come out in a batch, we're in essence dealing with those build beds as batches, you know, those batches go into our, um, our we call it our, our PPUP, which literally stands for post-processing unpacking machine. Um, not that imaginative with the naming, but it, it does what it says on the tin, but goes into the unpacking system. And there we deal with the build management, as we call it. So it's basically cooling of the build bed to the appropriate temperature. At that point, we can then unpack the parts, i.e. removing the, the, the parts. Um, you get then the, the, the powdered potatoes. We then remove the powder from that. And at that point, you then split up what's in, in essence a batch process into a single piece flow because you've got a whole bunch of individual random parts now and technically you don't know where they've come from and this is the problem because you might have three printers outputs and you then mix them all together it's like okay well what's what's this part where it's come from and you know what what about traceability etc so the the challenge that we 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 believe we solved is we've taken the batch um of parts coming out of the printer goes into our unpacking system goes through our depowdering or cleaning system it comes out as a clean part at that point, it goes into our post-pro sorting system. Again, another imaginative name. And imagine this a bit like uh, a luggage sorting system in uh, an airport, right? You go and check in your bag um, and uh, at the check-in desk, and that bag will go off into the the sort of uh, the, the 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 sort of um, the depths of the airport and get mixed with a whole myriad of other bags from other check-in desks, from other airlines and all this kind of stuff. But at the end, it gets spat out and it will go to the right airline, hopefully. You know, there are mistakes sometimes, but hopefully, you know, to the right time, to the right airline to be loaded on so you can depart on your flight. Think about our sorting machine like that. So you're taking all these batches of parts and, and dumping them all in together. And by using advanced image recognition systems and um, AI and, and part sorting, we're able to identify the part back to the 3D printed file, the STL um, or, or the CAD model. And then we can basically identify it and say, okay, well, actually, this part needs to go to chemical vapor smoothing, or it needs to go to coloring, or it needs to go to have nothing done to it, or it might need to go to a secondary post-processing operation such as Cerakote or another coating operation. So that's the sort of challenge we've cracked. And by using that sort of literally carousel, think about it like an airport, you know, luggage going round and round um, and then being spat out to the airplane. 
that's how we're doing it. So we're sort of like having this central routing system which transforms the batch process to a single piece flow. And then each part can be treated uniquely. And you might then have to regroup parts, unique parts into, let's say, a, a sub-batch for it to be chemical vapor smoothed or colored. But because you know the parts, because you can capture it on a camera and you can image recognize it, you know what needs to be done and you can identify it. You can create the digital twin. You can have full traceability. And then at the end, you can reconstitute those parts into their original batch if you need. If it's footwear, for example, that's quite important. Or if, if you just want them sorted for bagging operations, you can do that as well. So that's kind of the hybrid process that we've um, employed. That's really interesting. And I think I like the idea that, that okay, machine vision, I can understand the parts. I think AM Flow is doing something similar, right? So yep. I like that as an idea. But still, if I look at these, I look at like these parts that are made in the tens of millions, like take a hearing aid kind of thing, mm -hmm. we make in tens of millions. All by hand, by the way. That's that's also you were talking before about the, the G Geppetto thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You go to a, hear, a hearing aid manufacturer, <laughs> um, and you're like, "What? Why? Why?" Uh, and they're they're all doing this stuff by hand as well, still, uh, even though it's millions of parts. Mm -hmm. But you know, it does seem like like really difficult to identify all these parts because the the differences between them are really minute, right? Yeah, yeah, it can be, and um, the, that that is of course the um, challenge. And there's there's two sort of you know, there's a couple of solutions to that. One is if you can actually uniquely identify parts by some kind of, you know, machine-readable barcode or tag. Or Again, you're talking about very small parts. You know, that, that is a challenge. And it's not just the fact that it's hard to identify small parts compared to larger parts. But on a small part, the, the ability to tag it in terms of having a physical machine-readable barcode or something mm -hmm. is a lot harder. So that is a big challenge. Um, but there's there's also if you know without giving our secret source away if you know what's coming from the build bed and if you know what the 3D models are there is a way that you can sort and you can basically um, uh, optimize which is ultimately what you're doing and it's the speed of which you optimize that machine recognition vision system learning that allows you to identify those parts because it's it is a challenge but also if you simplify into its basic constituents and for example the hearing aid uh manufacturing uh, analogy is that you know assuming they all need to be chemically vapor smoothed they will all go through the chemical vapor smoothing process they will all come out um and then it's just a case of identifying it back to the original um you know pairing so to speak and sometimes mm -hmm. if if they are a pair of parts for example it could be hearing aids it could be footwear customized footwear left and right or it could be another medical device it's really important to reconstitute those back into the original um uh, pair and some sometimes you know there is a bit of manual interventions for example you might need to put a physical tag connecting parts or you might need to do something in the design of the part, you know, prior to printing to actually allow it to be post-processed or even recognized. So, you know, we do still need to think about this as a, um, a an optimization of the pre-processing as well. So the build file preparation, you know, the material selection, of course, but, you know, how you print for post-processing or finishing as well as printing for printing sake. So there's a lot of talk about design for um, printing or design for manufacturing, but we need to be designing for post-processing as well. And if we get into that mentality that some of those challenges that you've just mentioned can be addressed somewhat. Yeah. Use some RFID okay. dust. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, wish, I, 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 I wish it was that easy, but yeah. Then I we, know, we, it's yeah. not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Even with then, the vision systems, I get it on the smaller scale stuff. That's, it gets much harder. But are you, do you see AI 
vision systems growing well enough to determine the difference between like small parts like that? Or are you guys more focused at this point on medium size to larger parts? Yeah. So the typical part size working down to, you know, technically down to about 10 millimeters. So like one centimeter cubes, but that's really at the small end. So that's kind of like hearing aid size ish. Right. Um, But typically I would say most of the products we're talking about are the size of, let's say, a soccer ball or, you know, larger or maybe even a full build bed size, you know. So that does make it easier. Uh, You know, I think, you know, being very honest and open, we've got a way to go before we can, you know, cater for every single part. Um, And, and, you know, the the, industry is still developing and there still needs to be the right application, right? There's no point printing all these parts if the, you know, the business case doesn't stack up in the first place. So there's got to be the right application. But for example, we just announced a, Oshla announced our partnership with them. You know, Oshla are one of HP's, uh, one of the largest 3D printing users in the world. And they, they, they sort of transitioned from injection molding, so traditional uh, manufacturing, which they still do, to 3D printing. But they applied those manufacturing philosophies or traditional manufacturing philosophies. And working with them, you know, we developed this end-to-end process. And it's going to be a full um, end-to-end production line. But those parts aren't the size of hearing aids, right? You know, they are lattice structures, which brings its own complexity. Um, you know, lattice structures are inherently harder to recognize compared to solid objects. But the lattice structures themselves are relatively, you know, larger. It might be the size of a soccer ball or the size of a human fist or, you know, that that kind of size. And at that kind of size, uh, it does make it easier. But there's nothing to, you know, there's nothing to say, well, you know, why go? Why can't you go down smaller or larger, for example? And you know, again, we are dealing predominantly with powder-based parts. Um, uh, a lot of the powder-based parts tend to be in, in those range, but there is definitely a market for these systems in the metal side, which is something that needs to be developed, and also thermosets, which we touched on uh, a little bit before as well. Yeah, and, uh, and so, so we know now that you want to go more global, I think, and then mm-hmm. also m- more technologies and a more highly automated kind of solution. And Correct. What yes, are your ambitions yes. just generally for the business in the next couple of years, just in, in a kind of more high-level approach? Let's say. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we, we have been very fortunate in terms of, um, you know, right place, right time, right growth of the market. You know, the market's now growing again, which is great. You know, there was a bit of a slowdown during COVID, which I'm, you're all aware of. And interestingly, the, you know, the... COVID has benefited 3D printing generally. Um, so we're now seeing, you know, 25% year on year growth. But more interestingly, we're also seeing machine and system sales growth of about nine, 19%, which is really good. So that's the number of printers sold every year is growing by about 20%, which is really good. And that growth is set to, you know, continue at that rate for the next 10 years. And, you know, the, these unfortunate events such as, you know, the Ukraine war, COVID, and just supply chain issues generally that have been, you know, exacerbated by this have, I think, advanced 3D printing in terms of its widespread adoption in terms of an industrial setting, in terms of a manufacturing technology, which is great for us as a company. It's great for us as an industry. What that means is that we can grow fairly organically over the next uh, uh, few years. And, you know, typically our growth is, you know, typical investor story. It's not 10 or 20% a year. It's like doubling of growth year on year. And, and that, that's hard. You know, the industry will support it, but it then becomes an execution challenge. But really, from our perspective at a high level, it's continue that level of growth. And, you know, I mentioned some numbers there, doubling year on year. 
um, and really start to diversify in terms of these, you know, provision of end-to-end systems rather than just individual modules. So, you know, it's a higher value proposition, but a better return on investment. Um, and then ultimately, you know, moving into the other material subsets we talked about, which is metals and uh, thermosets. But that kind of like three-year horizon, you know, if you, if you think about like a three-year horizon, by year three, we will have these solutions and systems applicable to these other material types and be addressing all of the different types of printers and all the different types of materials that are available on the market. All right, to be clear, are you guys profitable at this point? So, so we, we are a fairly unique startup in two respects. Number one, we're a hardware company, which is very um, capital uh, efficient. Let's yeah. put it that way. So we've been revenue generating from year one. We've only raised about 25 million-ish uh, uh, US dollars. Um, uh, sort of latest exchange rates, maybe slightly more than that, but yeah, 25 to 30 million US dollars. Um, so we haven't raised a lot for a, a hardware company. And the reason is, is because we've been um, uh, generating revenue from year one. So we've always had that commercial focus, as I said. Um, you know, this year we're actually targeting profitability. So year six will be oh, um, cool. our profitability and, and, and cash flow positive. Um, as I said, doubling revenue um, and order bookings uh, year on year. Um, and, you know, that that notional goal of, uh, you know, that sort of hypothetical target of a $100 million turnover company that most companies want to reach within a certain time period is looking very realistic within the next couple of years. So we've been very fortunate that we can do that. But our our, our goal is being self-sufficient. Yes, we can raise capital. Yes, we have very um, well investors who back us and investors who would obviously like to put more money in. There's a, a lot of interest in investing in our company is that we do want to be self-sufficient. And I think that self-sufficiency as this sort of classic default dead versus default alive right you know if you if your capital runs out tomorrow if you can't raise funds tomorrow what will you do as a business and we want to be default alive which in essence means profitable you know we've got a product line that sells we're not reliant on a future generation of product that hasn't been developed yet we can generate not only profits but positive cash flow and if we can do that then that gives us options and i'm not saying we won't raise more money but what i'm saying is that puts us on a really good non-loss making platform the default alive platform that allows us to expand organically and i think too much these days there's a focus on you know scale and growth at all costs but actually, that's not sustainable. And I think we see that with the contracting of the general markets, you know, the markets generally in terms of the tech stocks and the tech markets. And, you know, before there was crazy revenue multiples, um, uh, you know, in terms of investment and valuations. Now people are coming back down to earth. They realize the value of 3D printing, but it's got to be done at a sensible multiple. And it's got to be based on fact, you know, profitability, sensible revenues. And underneath and underlying all of that, it's got to have a viable business. And that's what we're striving to do. Fair enough. Well said. <laughs> All right. I'm very excited. Very excited. Joseph, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you all very much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking with you all and meeting with you all very soon. Now we've got in-person events back. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) And uh, Max, thank you for for your time as well. Always a pleasure, Joris. Thanks for hosting. All right. And uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for listening, uh, everyone. Uh, This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.